Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey everybody, welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. My name is Drew Horning, and today we have Karen Tiber-Leland. She is the founder of Sterling Marketing Group, and that is a branding and marketing strategy and implementation firm specializing in personal CEO and business brands. She is also the best-selling author of the brand mapping strategy, Design, Build, and Accelerate Your Brand. Karen writes regularly for Inc.com and has been interviewed by the Today Show, CNN, Fox Business News, and even Oprah. She has spoken for TEDx, Harvard, and YPO, among others. Karen, it's great to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Drew. I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. So tell me, what made you take the Hoffman process 20 years ago? Well, you know, I was really good friends, still am, with with Liza and Raz and Grazi, and they had asked me to come in and do a little bit of consulting with the Institute. This was before I was a graduate. And so I would go to these meetings with some of the teachers, and I'd be in the meetings, and I'd be in the meetings with the teachers. And after about a month of this, I said to Liza, these people are amazing. I said, you know, and I was I was a little hesitant to do the process, not because I, I thought I didn't think the process was great, but I'd done a lot of other things and I was sort of burned out on what I considered to be personal development at that point. And I just didn't want to go to another long course where they, you know, where they were highly confrontational. <laughs> and so I remember saying to Liza, I love these teachers and I think it would be so great to do, but I don't want to be in another course where it's highly confrontational, blah, blah, blah. And Liza just started laughing and she said, yeah, that's not how we do the process, Karen. So I remember, so I registered right then and there and I remember showing up to the process. This is a white, we were doing it at White Sulphur Springs at the time. I remember showing up to the process and I had on a name tag, you know how you get your name tag and it has your name on it. And then there's some names underneath it. And I remember Liza checked me in and I said to Liza, Liza, who are Barb and Norm? Because those are the names on my name tag under my name. And she looked at me and she goes, they're your parents, Karen. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I need this. <laughs> wow. So, you know, people may not have a sense of it, but um, years ago, confrontational work in in group immersive settings was a thing it happened a lot more often than perhaps it does now I, well i think it was did the fashion of the time if you will and and, and there might have been some use to it but i think the other thing is I always say that was the pre oprah days right i think people are a lot more used to the concepts of self development and personal mastery than they were 20 years ago so that kind of intervention is almost never really required with people at that level and in that way anymore. And, and of course the process isn't confrontational in that sense at all. And it's not charismatic in that sense at all. And so I think one of the things that I really remember and appreciate about the process was I remember walking away every day. I remember thinking to myself, this thing is designed within an 
inch of its life beautifully for adult learning. You know, being someone who comes from that that field, I was just incredibly impressed with the the adult learning model of the process. And when you say designed within, within an inch of its life, what do you mean? I mean that it was really clearly, very consciously, specifically, intentionally, well thought out, well designed, well developed, well planned, so that you went through a process and the process itself was so strong, you didn't need to be highly confrontational in that way with people. The beauty of the design of the process did the work. I mean, we have to do the work as students, obviously, and the teachers do their work. But the underlying design of the process itself is so well-rooted in adult learning that it, it really helps with, with that learning. And as you talk about your experience, I have a sense that you were both uh, in the experience yourself and also appreciating the design of the process. I was. And, you know, I'm I'm a good student, quote unquote. I've always been told I'm a good student because I know you can't do something well if you don't fully throw yourself into it. So I was completely being a student and dealing with my own stuff as a student. But you know, there's a there was a part of my brain, you know, the, the business part of my brain that was really watching and in great admiration about the design of the program. So if you go back to your process some 20 years ago, what do you remember about it? What stands out? It's always interesting to to think about an event or an experience 20 years ago and to consider what still lingers in our heart and in our minds from that experience. Well, you know, it's funny. A lot I remember a lot of things actually, but a, and there's a lot that stands out, but what comes to mind when you ask me that is two things. One is I remember the the one exercise that we did where you get in touch with and you have a communication between uh, the different parts of you, you know, your intellect, your body, your spiritual self, etc. And I remember being in that exercise and all of a sudden realizing, wow, these people, you know, these aspects of myself are all on the same team, but I don't often relate to them like they're on the same team. And just having this profound realization that my body, my emotional self, my spiritual self, my intellectual self, my physical self, you know, that they were all on the same team and that they could at any time sit down and have a dialogue with each other and support each other. And that experience has never, ever, ever left me, nor has it grown any weaker. And in fact, to this day, I will occasionally sit down and let them all have a dialogue with each other if there's something we need to work on. I love that that still lives in you. And then even at times, it's like, okay, it's time to talk. And when when you do that, sit down and have a dialogue, do you actually speak out loud some of the aspects, some of the parts? I don't generally speak it out loud. I, I do it in my space quietly in a visualization and I let each one talk, but I don't generally tend to do it out loud. What a what a beautiful thing. You know, we, in the process, we have people sign a truce between all their aspects. And that sounds like a great truce and a and a powerful moving forward, as you said, a team. Yeah, you know, I forgot that we have them sign a truce. Now that you're saying that, I'm remembering that. But what's interesting is that I think what changed in that experience 
that um, experience in the process was they just, whether they signed it or not, I just live in a state of them being in a truce. And every once in a while, they're not in a, they get into a tiff. And so they sit down and have a little talk and it's like, okay, tiff over, but it's never a war. Uh, the difference between a war and a, an ongoing war and just a little bit of disgruntledness. So let me ask you a question. How do you know that they aren't quite getting along? How do you know there's uh, some disgruntledness in the relationship in your quadrinity? What are the indicators? I think it's different for everyone. For me, I tend to feel things in my body. You know, I tend to get resonances in my body. So even intuition, I feel much more in my body than anywhere else. So something just feels a little, and I call it off kilter in my, in my, you know, in my solar plexus, right in the middle there, something feels a little off kilter. And then I know I need to stop and, and take a look, uh, which is, by the way, the other thing I feel was dramatic that I, out of, that I got out of the process, which is if you had asked me before the process, how are you feeling? I'd be like, bad, good, fine. Okay. <laughs> and of course, and it would take me a while. And somebody said, well, what's the specific feeling? It would take me quite a while to find the feeling. You ask me now how I'm feeling. I can look and in a hot New York second, I can find what that feeling is. Right. And there's not usually one feeling. Sometimes there's multiple feelings. So the ability to one just sense that that is going on in my body, but then look really quickly and see what it is, is, is just strikingly dramatic since I did the process. And the interesting part is it isn't like I even had to practice it. I just feel like after being in the process for a week, 10 days, however long it was when I did it, that ability was very well honed. It's almost like it got hardwired in. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way to say it. It got hardwired in. And now you can access it more quickly, but you also have the words to describe the feelings. I found personally, but also in my professional work, it's useful to be able to name feelings because as soon as you name them, you're you're in the presence of what the thing is and you can deal with it as opposed to the abstract either I don't know or good bad okay. You know, good bad okay or is a lot different than I'm feeling spunky in a sexy yet sad sort of way. <laughs> yeah. So so let me ask you a question, because I know you do a lot of coaching and consulting and and a lot of work around branding. Tell, I, I'm, I'm so curious, since we're talking about feelings, uh, how do feelings work in the corporate world? What's the is there is there any use for them or is there really just to contain them and keep them at bay? Well, again, I think we've seen a really dramatic change in how corporations deal with that part of people, right? The people that work for them. You know, before I was a branding and marketing strategist, I used to run a management consulting firm and I did a lot of work in executive development and leadership development and, you know, that those sort of topics. And when I first started doing that work 30 years ago, you you could not talk about your feelings in the work environment. It was almost it was not only taboo, it was considered like it would hurt your career if you did that. And I think one of the changes that's happened is as the ideas of leadership have matured as different levels as different ages of employees have come into the workplace, millennials, et cetera. I think the room for talking about feelings is greatly expanded in corporations. I don't think it's where it needs to be or where it could be, but I think it's greatly expanded, number one. 
I think it's way more acceptable. And I think it also depends on the company. And I think different companies have different levels of tolerances for talking about that. But I do think when people are able to name their feelings, it has a profound impact on their ability to communicate with the people they're working with so that you're dealing with what's real. You know, if you're, an, and I've had the situation a lot. So I'll be, for example, facilitating a, a branding offsite and we'll be talking about something and I'll just be, I can tell something's going in in the room that's not being said. And if I say to people, um, well, well, tell me what's going on. Mostly they'll go, well, you know, no, it's all fine. Or if, even if I say, well, what's, you know, what's the, the thing that's the sticking point, people will sort of speak on the surface. But if I say, okay, everybody, I can tell something's going on. Everybody take out a piece of paper and I just want you to write down what you're feeling. There's no good. There's no bad. It could be, it could be, you feel happy. It could be, you feel scared. It could be, you feel thrilled. It could be, you feel angry. Just write it down. Okay. Go around. Just say it. Say, 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 say. That opens so much space for people to then talk about the content of what's going on. And I think what happens in companies and in business is we get so busy talking about the process of what's going on or the, the technical aspects of what's going on, the content of what's going on, that we often miss the feeling part. And it's not like it's all about the feelings and not about the content, but sometimes being able to recognize and acknowledge the feelings can open it up to have a content conversation that not only goes much quicker, but much more smoothly. I love that, Karen. What you're saying is, is that by allowing for feelings to come into the conversation, you actually expedite and you're more efficient around dealing with the content of the conversation afterwards. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the great distinctions in the process, and I don't know that it's a distinction that they make obviously, or it's just a distinction that I got and people I know have gotten, is being aware of your feelings and expressing your feelings and allowing feelings into the conversation is not the same thing as dramatizing your feelings or making your feelings the center of other people's problem. That's a different thing. And so I think the the process isn't about indulging your feelings and, and dramatizing them. It's about the recognition and the clear expression of them and the responsible expression of them. I so love that because sometimes people use the indulging of feelings as reason to not even talk about feelings. And part of what you're doing is making a distinction. No, we're not actually indulging. We are sharing and there are still boundaries and restraints around how we share. Absolutely. And the, and the process I found was extremely helpful in being able to put a, a gauge on myself for when I was in dramatizing my feelings versus just clearly and cleanly expressing them. I found the process was helpful in creating that, that gauge for myself. I love how, what we just did. We talked about your memory around the peace and the, the dialogue in your quadrinity and feelings. And then you just reference how you take that into the world. Is it fair to say that your immersive, intensive experience around feelings then uh, gives you more confidence to speak about it in, in corporations now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in the work I do with people, whether it's a CEO working on their personal brand one-on-one or coaching a CEO or whether it's, you know, facilitating a branding offsite for a client or doing marketing work with a client, my ability to, to communicate my feelings, but also to inquire about theirs 
and, and have them be able to communicate their feelings is a, a huge asset to what I do. So if you go back to your process, what else do you remember about your week at Hoffman? Well, this one's going to make you laugh, but this this really this stuck out to me at the time, and I've never forgotten about it. And I must think about this at least once a week. And it was something they I don't even know if they do this anymore, but it's something they wrote on the board. And what they wrote was, "Love is unconditional, but time and space is not." And I something happened when they wrote that. And I thought, "Oh, I see. I can love someone, but not want to spend any time with them." I can love someone and and have a sense of love or peace towards them, but realize it's not appropriate to have them in my life. For some reason, that really struck me when I was in the process, and I've just carried that message with me ever since. Well, there's a great quote that we share now. You can throw someone out of your house, but don't throw them out of your heart. Yeah, there you go. Same thing. So when I hear that, part of what I hear is, the importance of keeping your heart open, but having good boundaries. Is that part of what you're talking about? Yeah, I think it's distinguishing between you can love someone, you can wish someone well, you can you can love someone either in the personal sense, like you really know them and love them in your heart, or you just love them abstractly in terms of you love them, you know, the love you have for your fellow man, right? That you can love someone, but that doesn't mean that everyone is going to be appropriate to be in your life as a friend, as a lover, as a husband, as a wife, as a a friend, as a business associate. I think it's more just that you don't need to be making the other person wrong, so to speak. You can just sort of live and let live, like bygones, right? You can just let bygones be bygones. You can hold love in your heart for that person and wish them the best, but realize that in this particular lifetime or at this particular time in your life, having them be in any kind of relationship with you isn't maybe the best thing for you or for them. And that's fine. That's okay. That's that's normal. Because think about it. If we had everybody in our life who we love, we would have no time to do anything. You know, we couldn't, we, we only have limited time. Time and space really is limited. So it is conditional. And so we have to make choices. I love that. The, the good discernment of choice. I, I'll say, I'll, I'll give you an example. This is not from the process, but I have a really, really close friend. He's actually a very close friend of, of Liza and Raz's as well, Irving. And he died last year, not from COVID. He, he died of something else, but he died. He was, he was, you know, in his 70s. So he had a really amazing, good, long life. But still, we considered that young. We wanted him to live another 40 years. But he passed away. And before he passed away, I had a conversation with him. And he and a few few of our friends, and he had a conversation. And he said, this is the last conversation I had with him. And he said, you guys, it's going to make me cry. He said, you guys have made my life great. And he said, I would do it all over again just to be with you. And I remember thinking, wow, I have, you know, let's say I have a good 30 or 40 years left, I hope. <laughs> but I thought, you know, at this point in my life, I don't really want to be spending time with people that I don't have to where I wouldn't say I would do it all over again just to be with them. So I think it's like that. I think you can love people and love someone, but realize that they're just not where you want to put your time and energy without anyone being bad or wrong or a terrible person. It's just a matter of, of judiciously choosing where your time and energy goes. I don't know. Does that make sense? It does. You talked about how the process helped you get in touch with your body 
And I'm imagining when you heard Irving say that right before he died in your last conversation with him, that on some level you received that cellularly. Did, did you experience that in your body? It went right through my heart and flooded my whole entire body when I heard that. Beautiful. And that was very much, by the way, who Irving was. That is very consistent with the person he was. That wasn't something he was just saying. That is something I really know. from. I, I've known him. So have Lies and Raz. I've known him for 40 years. And that is who that person was. And it just went like a complete wash over me. So, Karen, let me ask you a question. What, given... Struggle is such a big part of life and overcoming struggle. How has the process, either when you were there, did you hit some tough spots or in life hitting tough spots? And can you take us to those and maybe if the process helped you navigate those challenges? You know, it's funny because when I took the process, it was not a particularly difficult time in my life. I mean, I took it, as I told you, not because I, I was anything was wrong, but because I was so inspired by being around Liza and Raz and the teachers. But what was interesting was that when I was really having a hard time in my life was probably 15 years later, 20, you know, if I sort of did it 20 years ago, I'm going to say maybe 12 to 15 years after that in one six month period of time, six months, right? I, I left a marriage and got a divorce after 22 years. I moved from California to New York. I moved back to California and then back to New York again, right? So that's four moves. I had a totally fabulous, amazing romance, which ended with me absolutely heartbroken. And then my father dropped dead. <laughs> six months. And I remember going to a Q2 and oh my God, I was in terrible shape. I mean, I basically, at one point I remember the, the teacher, I think it was Jane just said, Karen, you know what? You can skip this exercise. You can just sit in the corner and cry if you want. <laughs> That's how bad it was. Um, and it was horrible. I mean, you, it was horrible. I mean, I'm laughing now because, you know, whenever you go through something, once you're through it, you're through it, right? That was many years ago. That was about seven years ago. But I will tell you what I still had, even during that six months, that horrible six months where I cried every single day. And there was literally mornings where I would get up and I'd go, I just don't want to live. Now, of course, I, I, I am living, but I felt like I didn't want to live. Here's a thing that never went away that I completely got out of being in the process. My ability to tap into the, my spiritual self, you know, that, that bigger sense of myself, even with all that, that challenge, was instantaneous, completely available to me, and never left me. And that, that ability was something I did not have before the process. And that got hardwired during the process. And even during that hideous six months, I could instantly tap into that at, at any point. And, and that was a big deal to be able to have that. Wow. You know, I do, I do love that about our spiritual selves is that they never leave us. They never leave us. It's we who, out of a commitment to suffering, a commitment to patterns, abandon our spirit, but our spirit is always there, always available, eternal, ever-present. 
always. It's so funny because I've had the good fortune of being able to surround myself with really wonderful, I don't want to say enlightened because that's a kind of a loaded word, but very self-aware people, right? We all have our problems, but for the most part, very self-aware friends and very loving, compassionate people. And many have done the process. Some haven't, many have. But I remember when I was going through that really hard time and I would wake up in the morning and I would call one of my girlfriends, one girlfriend in particular, Kim, and I'd say, oh my God, Kim, this is so hard. I don't even know that I can get out of bed. I said, I just, I just feel like killing myself. And she'd go, well, are you going to kill yourself? And I'd go, no, I just feel like it, but I'm not going to. And she'd go, okay, well then get up and go for a, she goes, cause if you really are going to kill yourself, I'll stop everything I'm doing and come over. But if you're not, and you just feel like it, then get up and go for a walk and I'll come over and see you later. <laughs> and I really always thought like that sort of, you know, just really direct, but hugely compassionate, right? Loving, but, but practical, sort of spirituality was what I got out of the process. Mm. It also speaks to friends who both love you and speak directly to you. Absolutely. They, they pull no punches. And again, I just want to be clear. I, I was never going to kill myself, but I think a lot of, and I've talked, by the way, I've talked to a lot of people, clients, friends, whatever. And when you really talk to people and they trust you, many, many people, when they feel challenged, have the thought, it is just not worth living anymore. You know, sadly, some people take action on that. But oh, but it, I'm not the only person that ever had that thought during a really, really difficult time, we, even without an intention to do it. And so I think being able to hold, having that thought, knowing I wasn't going to do it, but having that thought and realizing there was a bigger spiritual part of myself and tap into that was a good way to to deal with those feelings. Does that make sense? It does. And in fact, I think one of the things the process does is help make the abnormal normal. And so at some point during the course of the week, people look around and look inward and say, wait a minute, this part of me that I thought was unlovable, unworthy, not okay, I realize, wait a minute, this is actually normal. Other people have it too. And they see all of a sudden all these other people who have very similar struggles and realize it's very normal. And I think this question of is life worth it is a normal question to have. And the more we can normalize it, the better off we'll be. Is that part of what you're saying? Yeah, because I think everybody has at some point in their life, or most people, maybe not everyone, but with rare exception, has that question about, you know, especially when things are really hard, is this really worth it? Is it worth this pain? Is it worth this struggle? What is my life really about? What kind of meaning can I bring to this? And honestly, I don't know anyone. And I know I know people, I've worked with CEOs that run multi-billion dollar corporations that have a beautiful home and beautiful children and a beautiful spouse and a, from the outside, a great life and even a good rich interior life who still will have that question at some point. And I think we there's there's too much of a trying to get it all perfect looking. And I think one of the great things about the process is you see the side of humanity where everybody struggles with the same stuff. People handle it differently, but you really see that all of the outer trappings don't have you struggle with the inner stuff any less. Well said. Well said, especially about the outward appearance, the outward trappings of success, and that despite that, 
people still have the struggles. But I want to I want to ask you a question, Karen, because earlier you referenced the change you see in corporate culture around feelings, and I know over the course of time, people like Brene Brown and Oprah have really helped move the culture, among other people, uh, forward in terms of uh, normalizing these things that previously were kept behind closed doors. And I know you were interviewed uh, with by Oprah. What was that experience like for you? Well, it's funny because it was a long time ago, but every, for, it was for one of the, I think it was for one of the first books I ever wrote. And it's funny because everyone has this impression of Oprah on her show. Like she's so warm and she's so friendly and she's this, and she is, but I have never seen anyone so in control, managing business oriented. I mean, that woman does not fool around. She was serious. This was in the old Oprah show, right? She was serious about getting things done and getting them done the way she wanted them done and getting them done right. So in some ways it was a very stressful experience because you're like, I don't want to screw this up. <laughs> so she, she was, she was very much in charge running her show, running her program. Oh yeah. She, she's a serious, serious entrepreneur. That one, as we all know, obviously you can tell that from what she does. That's great. And what was that for? One of the books you had written or? I'm trying to remember what book it was for, but it was about how people, when they're clients or customers, how they can work to get the best service and the best care and attention that they need. It was really about from the consumer and the customer side, how do you advocate for yourself to get the best care and service? Well, while we're there, what's what are some of the takeaways of how you can speak up for yourself. I know recently I was on a call. I was on hold. I was sort of getting the the once over and I had to breathe deeply and be like, I need to advocate for myself. I need to stand up. Well, you know, one thing, it's funny because we were just, it, it ties into something we were talking about earlier is it almost never is effective to dramatize your feelings to the other person on the phone. It's effective to tell them what your feelings are, but it's almost never effective to dramatize the feelings because that puts them on the defensive. Now that's hard to do. You know, when you've talked, when you've talked to now 10 people within the organization, no one's resolving your problem. You're on your fifth hour of talking to them. It's hard. It's hard to not lose your temper and dramatize your feelings. I mean, we all have can have trouble with that. But I think that's one thing is being able to say, look, I feel really angry or upset or I'm frustrated at this. They can get that. When people dramatize their feelings, it, it gets a lot harder for the person to, to help you. I think that's one thing. I think the other thing that's, to me, this is so interesting, is that oftentimes there's, there's two things to do that really make a difference. And they're so simple, it's almost ridiculous. You know, well, you have this voice naturally. You know how you'll you'll listen to a late night radio DJ and they'll be like, hi, it's 7509 and 9 a.m. and I'm going to take your calls. You have that voice. The more you can talk in that voice, the better, because that voice tends to be very calming and very relaxing and saying, you know, I've talked to seven people. You know, it's really that voice has a big calming effect on people's nervous systems. No way. You really think that that, I mean, I believe you, but you found that to be true, that just kind of embodying that calm voice can actually create change? I'm not the only one who's found it to be true. There's a ton of research 
that says that it'd be true. And you'll, you'll talk to people that are, for example, hostage negotiators, and they will tell you that that is one of the tones of voice that they use. So it's, it's, it's well known. And then I think the other thing that really, that really works is it's really being able to say to the other person what you specifically want them to do. You know, because people are not great if you give them an abstract. Well, can you just fix this problem for me? As opposed to, okay, here's what I'd like you to do. This, 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 and this. Can you do that? Well, I can do this part of it, but I can't do that part of it. So specificity makes a big difference. I mean, the crazy thing about that, and it's like anything, by the way, it's the same in CEO branding. It's the same in business branding. It's the same in leadership. We often make these things so complicated, but often they come down to some very simple things that if you you really learn to do them well, produce an enormous outcome. That's fantastic because I've often thought that going back to the feeling identification, that's only part of it to name your feelings, to express your feelings without dramatizing. But the second part is then to figure out what you need as a result of the feeling and then to ask for what you need. Sort of it builds and scaffolds one on the other. Yeah, and that's and that's surprisingly a number. A lot of people don't do that. You said that, and people tend to make things more complicated than they need to, and in fact, sometimes the answers are more simple than we think they should be. Well, and I think that's true. You know, I, you mentioned Brene Brown, and I, I will tell you, I remember that I remember, I remember exactly where I was the first time I saw. Her TED talk on the first TED talk on vulnerability, not the second one, but the first, the original one that made her famous. And I remember she started talking about vulnerability and I broke into hysterical crying. I think I was with a group of people, so I believe I went and locked myself in the bathroom. Um, <laughs> hysterically crying. And somebody came in, they knocked, like, Karen, why are you locked in the bathroom? And I, and it was because I had this realization that. I kind of grew up in this family and, and my parents are wonderful. I'm, I'm not blaming my parents for anything, but I sort of grew up in this family where the, where the unspoken mantra was, you know, never let them see you sweat. And so you never cried in front of anyone. You never showed anyone your vulnerability. You didn't express feelings that made you vulnerable. Now, the process was amazing, right, for unlocking a huge amount of that. Fabulous. But I just remember when I saw that video thinking, what have I been fighting so hard against all these years? who cares? Who cares if I'm vulnerable and someone doesn't like me or it doesn't turn out? What, what, what possible difference could that actually make in my life as opposed to just being vulnerable? And I just sort of got it and realized, okay, that's a really great thing to embrace. And I think asking for what you want requires a certain amount of vulnerability. And so there's, because you might get rejected, you know, somebody might say no, somebody might decline you. And so it takes a certain amount of vulnerability to be able to ask for what you want. You know, I never did it super professionally, but I was for when I started, I was on a path of being an actor. And so I would go to these auditions and, you know, you do an audition. I was a musical theater major. You do an audition. And then the director goes, okay, thanks. And it's like, we'll call you if we're interested. And, you know, you have to sort of learn to let that roll off your back because that's just the nature of that game. So I think asking for what you want does require this vulnerability where you have to be willing to have them go, yeah, no, 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 I'm not going to do that and just let it roll. 
It's almost like be vulnerable to the no. Well said. To the no thank you. Yeah, and it doesn't mean anything. The the hardest part is not making it mean anything about you or your life or any of that. And I think one of the great things about the process is one, you really see that everybody struggles with the same stuff. And that two, you realize that people, including yourself, people and you have so much of your own stuff going on underneath the surface that it's almost never about the other person. And I think the process is really helpful in that kind of recognition. It was certainly helpful for me in that recognition. So good. So good, Karen. That's You're dropping wisdom. So just a, a final question is, do you, do you hang out with people who've graduated from the process or, or is that more Raz and Liza on the West Coast and you're on the East Coast? I actually have a lot of friends that have done the process that I've been friends with for a long time. So I have a lot of people that have done the process, but here's what's really crazy. This has happened to me three times in the last year. Three times in the last year during, during the lockdown, I met someone via Zoom through a business thing or a personal thing. I met a friend or I met a business associate through Zoom. We became friends and we just loved each other, really great friends. And at some point at, in one of our conversations, something got mentioned and somebody mentioned the Hoffman. I said, are you a Hoffman graduate? And they said, yes, are you? And I said, yes, I used to be on the board. Now I'm on the advisory board. So three times it has happened to me where I met people through Zoom from a business point of view who became friends where we just instantly like loved each other, thought we were on the same path, et cetera. And it turned out they were Hoffman grads. So I thought that was really funny. That's too good. I love the connection and then later the realization of fellow graduates. There is. And I do a lot of work with YPO graduates and for YPO. And as you know, a lot of people from YPO have done done Hoffman. So I, I have a lot of people in my sphere and in my space quite frequently that are Hoffman graduates. And YPO stands for? Oh, sorry. Young President's Organization. Young President's Organizations. Yeah, I just wanted to get that in there. Karen, I... I'm grateful for this conversation. I have a smile on my face. I love your energy. We haven't met, but I'm grateful for you being on the board and now being on the advisory board. Thank you so much. Oh, Drew, it's my pleasure. It's so fun to talk about the process. I really enjoyed it. And you do have a real, you do have a really great voice. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. What's it been like to remember your process? Does it feel more alive even talking about it? Yes, it, it feels more alive talking about it. And it's, and it's fun to talk about it. And it reminds me of those, those skills and those abilities I got that are always at my fingertips to use. So good. Karen Tiber Leland, thank you very much. Drew, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me to be on the podcast. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.